I'm so glad that you're here. We are in part five, the final week of a series called The Heart of David. This is how this series began. When God looks at another human being on earth and says, I like that dude. That guy has my heart. He is a man after my own heart. It begs the question, what is it about that dude? What is in his heart? Because I want a heart like his heart so that God looks at my heart and says, that dude is just like my heart. Does that make sense? Are y'all with me today? Like that's what we wanted to discover as we looked at the life of David. Now, if you know the story of David, you know that David was not perfect. So perfection is not what God requires, but he's looking for certain traits, characteristics, things that embody because David was not perfect, especially when you read the middle and the ending of his life, he makes some pretty major blunders. But the core of his being, he had some characteristics that when God looked at, God said, this is my man. This guy can be the king. This guy embodies my heart. And so we've been looking at this, this great, incredible story. It begins with really his, his life uh, takes a radical turn when a prophet shows up and says, one day you will be the king. And it all unravels from there. His next moment in life is really when he faces David and Goliath, that whole epic story, you know, where little, little David. And there's some interesting facts about that story that David was not actually the underdog, um, not completely as it would appear to be. And the reason why is because these little Israelite boys uh, from this particular tribe as shepherds, they were pretty fierce. The whole thing of him wielding a rock, that wasn't like a little kid with like a you know, that's not what that was. These dudes had the ability to on target, put a rock at like a high, high volume of speed to the point where it could kill him. These guys were that, that whole throw in the rock thing. That's a pretty big deal. Those guys were lethal with a slingshot. And so he, he defeats Goliath. He goes on not only just to be, you know, the national hero, but he embodies the idea that he is a warrior, that he's a fighter. And there's something in him that God said, that's good. It's good for you to be a fighter. Because when you don't have that in you, you lay down and you lay over and you give up and you quit. You need to have something in you that fights a little bit. And I'm not talking about punch somebody in the mouth. I'm talking about someone who fights for what they believe in and also fights against the spiritual enemies of their life. And that was the warrior of David. Then we move forward as he becomes kind of the son-in-law to the king. He eventually becomes the best friend of the king's son. And it's probably the most perfect picture of what friendship looks like. In all the Bible, when you look at all the relationships, there is no greater set of friends than David and Jonathan in all of Scripture. And he kind of embodies like, here's how you treat your friend. And here's why it's so important. It's because the way that you treat your friends, please get this, is a reflection of how you will eventually treat God. Because it's all relationships. Of course, a couple of weeks ago, we, we, we kind of took that final turn into that David was a servant. And that David was a servant in the sense that like, Hey, my life belongs to you. You're the king and I am a servant in your kingdom. And what that means for you and I is this, is that whenever we have decisions, whenever we have choices to make, that we lay down those decisions and we basically lay them against the law of God, the wisdom of God and the principles of God. And we allow God to speak into how we choose, how we make decisions, how we live life, who we date, where we go to school. All of our major life decisions are laid before the wisdom of God, the law of God and the principles of God. But today we'll kind of put a bow on this thing and wrap it up as I want to talk about what may be the most important aspect of David. And it may be the thing that triggers all the other things. Does that make sense? Like it may be the thing that kind of sparks and unravels all other things. And it's this is that David, although he was a, a manly dude, he was a fierce warrior. He was uh, he was he was I said he was thuggalicious one week. I mean, he was he was a beast of a dude. He not only was tough and strong. And nasty on the battlefield, but inside of his heart, he had a soft spot for God. And he had the heart 
of a worshiper. When you look at the the book of Psalms, if you were to open up your Bible to the very center, you'd dive right into the book of Psalms. The majority of those things were written by David. Sometimes in the palace, sometimes in a cave, he wrote these things as a worship songs. As a matter of fact, most of the titles, many of them will mention something about having notes or lyrics, and we don't have any of that stuff. That's long gone. But this stuff was set to music to them. And David was a passionate worshiper. He had the heart of a worshiper. It was something that he was just kind of known for. And I believe, and I think we'll see this a little bit today, that having the heart of a worshiper is what kind of triggers many of the other great things in your life. Let's pray before we get into the Bible. Can we do that? Bow your heads with me one more time. Jesus, God, speak to us today, challenge us today, lift us up today, God. Let us walk out of this place different than the way we walked in, God. Let your words speak and let your words change us, God, from the inside out, Lord. That is our prayer today in Jesus' name. We all said amen. Hey, if you have your Bible, go to Acts chapter 15 for me real quick here. Now, I just want you to know this. David is not in the book of Acts. That'd be thousands of years ago, right? So David lived thousands of years ago. He was really the second king, official king of Israel. But he's talked about a lot. The Psalms are quoted a lot, but he's talked about in the New Testament And in Acts chapter 15, there's this real interesting story. I need to tell you this story real quick here. Basically, as the church is expanding, the church is exploding. The the, the 12 disciples are building the church as Jesus commanded them to do. And then they've run into a snag because they don't know what to do with all these new believers that are not Jewish believers anymore. There are Gentile believers. Now, how many of you are not Jewish in here? If you're not Jewish, raise your hand. All right, you're a Gentile. That sounds a little insulting. It's not meant to be. You're just not a Jew. okay? so you're either Jewish or you were Gentile. And so the original church started out because Jesus was Jewish and all the disciples were Jewish. And the, the early church started out mostly as Jewish. But that was never God's intent. God's intent was to fling the doors wide open and to invite everybody in. So surely all these Gentile believers start coming into the fold and all the disciples are having a discussion and an argument and a debate on what do we do with them? Because we've always been keeping these Jewish laws, dietary laws, ceremonial laws, all these things that, you know, we just have been doing since we were little kids. What do we do with the Gentiles? Do they got to keep, I mean, does the men's group have to have circumcision at, 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 at you know, startup week? I mean, how does that work? Do, do, do you got to go back and you got to be kosher now and you can't have pork or pork chops or bacon or, um, you can't have a lobster, you can't have ribs, you can't have crab, you can't... How am I getting hungry up in here? Like, mm, Jesus, hallelujah. Anyway, so what do we do? You know, and so they have this debate and this council, and, and James speaks up, who was kind of the bishop or the overseer of the whole deal at that point in time, and he goes, hey, look, we will not make it hard for people to come into the kingdom, and we're not going to start throwing all these rules at everybody and make people jump through hoops. You got to do this. You got to do this. Because isn't it kind of a dumb idea? And this is what many times the church presents. The church presents the notion that to come into our fold, to come into our group, you have to be like one of us. That's not how Jesus was. Jesus was more like, hey, come into our group, come into the fold. And when you hang out with me long enough, I promise you're just going to change and you will eventually become more like me because you just hang out with me all the time. And you're going to see it's just kind of worth it. And as you so you don't have to be perfect to get up in here. You don't have to have it all together. It's one of the, the kind of the dumbest things I've ever heard is, you know, you, you talk to your friend who's away from God or hadn't been to church in decades. And you're like, well, you know, I just I, I need to get some things right in my life before I come back to church. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? You don't get things right before you come to church. You come to church so you can get things right. You're, you're hearing me out there. So it's just the doors are open. Just come. Does that make sense? But at the end of this discussion, they say something very profound. They quote a very old prophecy from the book of Amos. 
and they say these words, and in it they mention David. Because I bet you all are wondering, like, what does this have to do with David? Let's go. Acts chapter 15, verse number 16. At the end of this discussion, they say, hey, we're letting them in. Get them in. They say, after this, I will return. And this is a prophecy about God. After this, God will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. The other translation would have said his tabernacle. Okay? It's ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. Now you see why they were bringing it up, right? They just had this big discussion on Gentiles and they go back to this idea about David and a tent and all the Gentiles. Got it? So I will, you know, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So here's what they reference. They say, we are flinging the doors wide open. Everybody gets in. Everybody has access. Everybody can come to God now. There's no restrictions. There's no hoops. You don't got to keep all these rules first. You just come in. Just get closer to God. And by doing so, everything else will take care of itself as you draw nearer and nearer to God. And he mentions people being able to seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. Now, let's go back in time. Back in Israel's history, when Moses came out of Egypt, they had an ark. Has anybody ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a dope movie, isn't it? That's old school. So remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? They're all trying to find what? The Ark. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. It was something that the Israelites had as a representation of kind of who God was. It wasn't God. It just represented. And so literally, it's this box covered in gold. And on the top, there are these two cherubim. And then on the middle, there was a mercy seat. And so when they would make a sacrifice, they would take the blood of an animal, pour it over the mercy seat. And that would basically cover the sins of the nation for a year. Do you, do you remember this? This is from the kind of the Yom Kippur, some of these Jewish ideas. Is here. Are you with me so far? So they have a God box, right? But you gotta, you gotta have a place for the God box. You know what I mean? And so then they build a tent and it's called the tabernacle of Moses. Why'd they call it that? Well, because Moses came up with this idea, right? That was what God told him to do. Moses presented to the people. And so it's called the tabernacle of Moses. And it, check this out. This is the way it would work is whenever the Israelites would show up to a location, they would start building this new series of tents and they would do it every time they stopped. Now, if you've ever heard this, just flow with me. It's really, really cool. The way this all breaks down. They had a series of tents and curtains and inside the deepest layer of the deepest tent and the deepest curtain was what the God box. The mysterious God box. Remember the, 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 the German guy opened it up and his face, man, that didn't really happen, but okay, it's a mysterious God box. And, and, and again, it represented the presence of God. And so the way that Moses's tabernacle worked is there was this big, huge tent that went around the whole thing and it built like a big, you know, something about the size of this room, maybe a tent that just went this way, uh, uh, just a, a wall. And then inside of that, it was wide open, but there was an altar and there was this different stuff and they would make the sacrifices there. And then beyond that was a small little tent, right? And this one actually had a roof to it and you would go in and it had a first layer. It was called the inner court. So the, the first layer is called the outer court. Next layer is called the inner court. In there was the, the, like, uh, for instance, like the, the, the land, the, I mean, oh, I'm losing my mind here. What do they celebrate? Hanukkah. Remember Hanukkah? The little menorah, the lamp. So that's inside the inner court, right? Inside of that's the table of showbread. And here, so there's some special little religious stuff in there. And then there was this one more tent and it was a big, huge, thick curtain. And beyond that was the God box. Now here's the crazy part. Nobody could ever see the God box. 
Nobody could ever see that which represented the presence of God. It's just all a bunch of like you see how like there's obstacles and barriers and things you have to do. And you had to be a sanctified priest to get into the first layer. And then you had to be a sanctified priest to get beyond the second layer. And then to get in the third layer where the God box was, you had to be the high priest and you can only go in there one day per year. And this is what they would do. And so like if you were like outside the tent, let's just say you were a Jewish person just kind of like hanging out. You know what you would hear? On the other side of that big wall, man, they would be killing animals. So you would smell burning flesh and you would hear like the slaughter of animals because they were sacrificing animals. That's just how they did it. You following me so far? So then David comes along and things have changed. Uh, David does something uniquely different. Now, after David, they build a temple. Okay, so they've gone from a tent to a temple. And Solomon builds the temple just like the way Moses' tabernacle was. So there's kind of like, again, there's an outer court, there's an inner court, there's a holy of holies, and only the high priest goes in there on one day per year to make a sacrifice. Are you with me so far? So again, where was the God box in the days of Solomon? Behind big walls, behind another curtain, behind another thing. And so that's how it was. But, everybody say, but. There's this small window of time where David does something very, very different. His tabernacle and the one that they say that God will rebuild and God will restore, it does not have big tents. It does not have big curtains. It is open. It is exposed. Everyone can see it. Anybody that could walk by like that. Dude, that's the God box. I saw that in Indiana Jones. Dude, that's the one. I saw saw that. Everybody could gain access. Everybody could see. Everybody could partake. Everybody could come and worship. And then again, in the old, in the old school system, there wasn't a lot of like singing and praising and worshiping. And, and there wasn't a lot of that. There was a minimal amount of that, if any at all. But there was tons and tons of like animal sacrifice. Not in David's day. In David's day, they would start with an animal sacrifice. And then David said, bring out the harp and the lyre and the timbrel and the thing and all kinds of instruments. I have no idea what they are. And just bring them all out and bring out singers and bring out dancers because we are going to worship God. And so the way that David's temple and tabernacle would work is this. You'd, you'd open with a sacrifice, but after that it was just a bunch of praise and worship. And everyone could see and every could, one could partake and everyone could come. Do you see what's happening here? And the apostles are looking at this thing. That's what the future looks like. That's what we're going to embody right now. That, that no, no, cause think about this. When Jesus died, the Bible says that on the day that he died, there was an earthquake and the temple inside the temple, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Do you remember this? There, hey, how do you, how do you tear a curtain from top to bottom? Cause it was a big, tall 20 foot curtain. You, you, only God could get up on a ladder and get that one right. And so the, it was torn from top to bottom to say that no longer is the presence of God trapped behind a series of walls and curtains and all kinds of religious things that you have to do. The presence of God is now exposed to everyone at any time, at anywhere. Because here's what you need to know. When we look at restoring the tabernacle of David and you're trying to figure out what that is, this is what you need to know. We are the tabernacle of David. It's you and it's me. Because no longer is God in a temple, in a, in a curtain, in a tent, in a box. God, the Bible says, listen to, listen to this. The Bible says this in um, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your bodies are what? Temples or tabernacles or houses for what? The Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price is what the Bible goes on to say. So you are the tabernacle of God. Think about what Jesus said. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. 
The very the, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that lives in you. Like God, when you invite Jesus into your life, when you repent and turn to God and say, God, I need you and I want you in my life. God doesn't just say, hey, boy, way to go. We'll get you in. You know, no, he actually dwells inside of you and you become the tabernacle. Of God, that God dwells in you. This is what we overlook most of the time in life. We forget that the Holy Spirit actually lives within us to empower us and help us live for Christ. And you are now the tabernacle of God. Meaning before people would come and and try to worship at the God box and worship at the God tent and be a part of this thing. But now it can go anywhere at any time, at any moment. Does that make sense? Like I'll put it to you like this. The way Paul said it was this. He said, you are living epistles. Now, epistles are just letters because they would write letters about Jesus. Like, for example, the epistle of Matthew, the epistle of Mark, the epistle of Luke or the epistle of John. And you would read those to learn about Jesus. And we still do that today. But what Paul was saying is this, is that God lives inside of you and other people should look at your life and your life should point them back to Jesus. Because you are the tabernacle of David. But one of the distinct and key features of the tabernacle of David was worship. Like, like you'd open with an offering, you'd open with a sacrifice, but after that, it was a free for all of worship. It was tons and tons of singing and dancing and instruments and worship unto God. And I think that's something that needs to be focused on. I want to talk to you about that today because I want you to kind of get an understanding of why we worship and why we sing. And for some of you, you stand on the outside looking in because I know how you are. I remember. Now, I grew up in a Baptist church. Does anybody remember traditional Baptist church? Anybody do that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, you've heard this before. So we had hymnal books, right? And you would sing the first verse, the second verse, and the fifth verse. You'd always skip some verses. I don't know why. You ever read hymnal stuff? It's it's like, it's it's written from long ago, so some of it's hard to understand. They use words. What do you mean, use today? You know, it's kind of old English-ish. And uh, I just, that's a new word. Old English-ish. So, and, and so anyway, that's how we would sing. And then in my church, I don't know if you ever did this, but like, it was weird if you said amen. Like, it would be weird if you started clapping at the end of a song. It would be weird if you said hallelujah or something like that. It would be like, people would be like. You know, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow you to, you know, you just it'd be, it'd be, you'd just be looked at weird. And so it was a very solemn environment. Does that make sense? I don't think that that's the way the tabernacle of David looked like. Now, if that's the way you like church or other people do church, we're not knocking that. But I just don't think that's what David's tabernacle looked like. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, the guy who translated and helped translate the Bible into a language that the masses could read, he has this quote where he said the most two most important things that you can have are a copy of the Bible and a copy of the hymnal. Now, here's, where, here's what you need to know about the hymnal. Martin Luther liked beer. And Martin Luther would go to the local pub to have a pint or a Guinness or whatever they drank back then. He was German. I don't know what German beer is. But anyway, he would go and have a beer and Martin Luther would write hymns and he would take the tunes from the bar songs and put theology and scripture to them. And that's how they started hymnals. Well, I just want to sing because there is no such thing like you ever get into this idea of like, well, this is Christian music and this is secular music. There's no such thing. There's just music music. And then we use music to glorify God. Does that make sense? And that's what Martin Luther is like. Music's music. And I like that beat. And so I'm taking that beat and I'm going to drop some Jesus on it. And I'm going to drop some theology on it. And we're just going to use it to worship God because music's music. Does that make sense? And so we use music to glorify God because God put music in us. So 
there's, there's a power behind worship is my point. And, and we, need to, we need to figure out the power of worship. Let me talk to you about the power of worship real quick here. N- number one is, let me throw you six ideas real quick here. Number one is this, is worship promotes intimacy in our relationship with God. Worship promotes intimacy in our relationship with God. It actually changes the nature of our relationship. Because if you come and you have a staunch kind of formal approach to God, then that sometimes influences the way you actually relate to God. Let me make some sense of this. I have three, three children. Um, they're all three years apart. They're kind of, I don't even know how old they are, but they're, they're there. They live in the house. But they have never once come to me and said, Father, mayest thou get me a bowl of cereal in thine presence. You know, I've just, they, they don't have that. They're like, hey, daddy, can I have a bowl of cereal, please? And, you know, it's just so. So, again, the way that we relate to God is many times dictated by. And I need you to know that God does not come into your life to give you a new set of rules. Does that make sense? God has come into your life so that you might have a relationship with him. And out of that flows everything. Out of that relationship. And so worship helps build the dynamic that God is close. It helps build the dynamic that God's relational. You need to know this, that your, your, your God is a perfect heavenly father. And that that's how you relate to him. And so I want you to be able to love, to worship, to sing, to do all those things. Because I want you to know that this is a relational thing. This is not a regulation thing. Does that make sense? This is the, you don't come in these doors and figure out what I can do and what I can't do. We can't, listen, one of the things I get from every people every once in a while is this. But like, how much this can I do and still get to heaven? You've missed it. This is not about how close or how far away or how many of these or how many. What does my church attendance need to be to get? No, this is about you engaging into a relationship with a real and loving God. And out of that flows everything. Does that make sense? Like, I've never once thought about, like, oh, i got to keep that rule, that right. No, no, no. I worry about loving God. And if I love God, everything else takes care of itself. But that's relational. That's not regulatory. So worship builds this dynamic. Number two is this, is that worship changes our perspective. I want you to know that, that in our culture, we are very easy to get caught up in the me-centered world, aren't we? Have you ever thought about the idea that you live on a planet shared with about 6 billion people? That's a, that's a lot of people. I want you to think about that for a second. You share a planet with 6 billion people. And that's just at one moment in time. That's not all generations prior or generations that will come along behind. But even right now, you share a planet with 6 Do you really believe that the world revolves around you? But our perspective is so me-centered. We're always worried about what we think and what we feel and what we're going through. And we're so myopic in our world that we never, ever consider like, hey, maybe life shouldn't be all about me. And here's what happens. When you become a worshiper, then it's impossible to be in a place of, well, I don't say impossible. It's really, really hard to be in a place of worship and to still be completely focused on yourself. Why? Because a place of worship is where you take the attention off of you on purpose that your attention and focus may be on a perfect and loving heavenly father. And so your perspective changes. Like, like, give me an example. Like sometimes you'll be going through things in life and you'll just be full of doubt. It's hard to bring doubt into the presence of God. It just is. You, it is because your mind and your focus completely move towards God. Your perspective changes. Uh, let, let me tell you another one. Like, again, this whole me-centered thing, it, it's hard to not get in the presence of God and worship and not be grateful. Does that make sense? And so if you want to have a grateful heart, worship. 
Because as soon as you begin to worship, as soon as you begin to sing, as soon as you set your attention on someone else, you're not focused on you anymore. You're completely focused on God. Listen to Isaiah 26, 3. He says this. He says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. I'm telling you, your mind will move in a brand new direction. So not only do you have a change of relational dynamic, you have a change in where your thoughts go and where your mind goes. Number three is this, is that worship promotes a healthy expression of affection to God. Now, there's something interesting about this because I want to talk about this. Many times, the reason why we have a, a challenge with worship and we feel uncomfortable worshiping, and I'm going to talk to dudes a little bit especially too because I think dudes deal with this more than girls do, is many of us cannot get affectionate when it comes to our relationship with God. We're like, oh, I'll, I'll worship. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you. I'm singing. Well, I'm singing. But you would say that lacks some enthusiasm. That lacks some experience. Can you imagine? So you see, and then this is the other reason why it's an issue. It's because many times when you have an inability to be affectionate with God, it comes from your inability to be affectionate with anybody, even your spouse or your children. And so that whole deal is something that you want to break off of your life. Listen to me. There's a problem or an issue that you want to work out if you have a problem being affectionate with someone you love. Does that make sense? Like for, for like, and I've heard these stories too. Like I had a dad who his father never told him that he loved him. And he grew up with this, you know, kind of jaded father in his life that never spoke the words, I love you. Now, how many of you would think that's great, healthy relational dynamic right there? That's what we all want. That's what we all strive for. And I'm telling you that something's wrong in you when you can't give your child appropriate, affectionate hug and touch. There's something wrong there when you can't express to your spouse that you love them and be affectionate physically with them. Like that's something that you want to have. But what you'll notice is that it, that type of that type of problem in your uh, in your relationships bleeds right over into your relationship with God. And you have an inability to be affectionate with God. And what I'm telling you is this is I want you to force yourself to break out of that mold. For some of you, it is. It's just be singing for the very first time. It might be clapping. It's lifting your hands. It's being physically expressionate to your heavenly father. And it's a good thing. As a matter of fact, one one of my my fondest memories, I have a buddy named Sean, longtime friend. I've known him. um, I don't even know how old I am. I've known him for 17 years. 17 years, been a great friend to me. And I remember one of the first times I ever hung out with him and met him. We met at church, and uh, we, while we're there, we're uh, we're worshiping. And our church in Michigan, when I was there, was very, very uh, like expressive with their worship, more so than we are, and, and and very, very expressive, very, very affectionate. They were the church that wasn't afraid to whip out a banner every once in a while or something like that. And so, and so, so they, they, you know, we had these long worship sessions. And Sean is a brand new believer. He is so in love with God and so thankful for what God's done in his life. And he gets so lost in worship. So he's worshiping like this. And there's kind of a music that has kind of like the slow sway to it. So what he does, though, is he worships for so long in this position. And he's completely unaware that while he has swayed in his worship, that what he has slowly done is completely turn his back. Now, he's on the second row. Okay, so can you imagine like all of a sudden somebody on the second row just facing all of you like this? But here, here's what I want you to know. He did not care. He was not concerned about you 
he was concerned about his heavenly father and being in a place of worshiping his heavenly father and giving him praise and him glory. He was not thinking about who was next to him. He was not concerned about what other people would think of him. And we all laughed at him at the end. I'm telling you, there's something powerful about having affection in your relationship with God. Let me, let me give you this example again. This is the idea that you want healthy expression in your relationships. And what you'll see is it corresponds with having a healthy expression in your worship with God. Because the Bible says this, and I've taught this in, in marriage sermons before, is that the Bible says that a man should leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. Everybody say cleave. It means to pursue with energy. And I've told you that you need to pursue your spouse. You need to chase after them. You need to hit on them. You need to mack on them. You need to use lines on them. I've been married 20 years. You need to mack on your 20-year-old wife, okay? You need to keep doing all those things to pursue your wife with energy, to pursue your husband with energy. Okay, here's what you need to know. Is the same word cleave used in Genesis 2 for marriage is also used in Deuteronomy to say you should cleave to God. You should cleave to God. Meaning you should pursue with energy don't become uh, emotionally and relationally lazy in your approaches to people but definitely don't become emotionally and relationally lazy when it comes to your approach to god are you hearing me today like that expression is good and healthy let's keep going number four is this is that worship allows those we influence to worship god I'm telling you out there, if you're a parent out here, I've got a new dynamic now because my kids have come up through Kids Church and I love our kids program. It is the most fun thing in the world. I'll talk to my kids after the kids program, like what they talk about or what they learn. Or my kid went to youth group for the first time and he's like, we learned that there's no comparison in win and you know, there's no win in comparison. He's given, he gave me the whole sermon. And so I'm telling you, there's some great children, some great youth stuff going on, but he's also at the age now to where now he's in here on a Sunday morning. And I've got my son right next to me. And so I'm telling you, there's something that you, when you worship God with expression, you will enable and empower and release them to worship God with expression. And I know the feeling, guys, I know, I know the feeling to be next to your wife and you kind of want to worship, but then you're thinking about, you know, what you said to her two days ago. Or that you didn't do the dishes this morning. Or whatever it is. And, and you know, it, it, there's a reservation to wanting to worship next to your spouse, women. There, there's a reservation to wanting to worship in front of your kids sometimes. And I'm telling you, I want you to fight through. I want you to worship anyway. Because it will release those around you to worship as well. How many of you want your kids to be worshipers of God? The only way they're going to find that is if they see you worshiping God. Guys, listen to me. Watch this scripture. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers. Do not exasperate your children, but instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You know what one of our duties is, as fathers are? It is to literally train our children in what it means to be a Christ follower. And that would include, hey, let me show you what it's like to pray. Let's pray. I'm going to teach you how to pray. Let's talk about what it means to worship it. I just want you to see me that I can lift my hands or close my eyes or sing a song and just put my attention on God. It's a powerful thing to do that in front of your children. Uh, number uh, five is this. Number five, worship is a weapon against your enemy. Worship is a weapon against your enemy. I promise you there is something powerful to worship that, that many times the things in life that you're battling, you could defeat it with worship if you wanted to. Like some of you, you, you have like condemnation over your life, over past sins, past mistakes, things that you've done in your past. I guarantee you this. You go worship the Lord about the cross. You go worship Jesus and thank Jesus for the cross. You can't live in condemnation while praising Jesus for the cross because the cross took away all your shame and all your sin and all your past. It's hard. Do you see the difference? Like you're going to defeat condemnation with the worshiping the cross. As a matter of fact, the book of Isaiah says this, talking about depression. Some of you battle depression. I was on the phone with a woman this past week who said, I've been battling depression 
Listen to what the Bible says. Isaiah says that God will bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. And listen to what he said he'd give them. I'll give them a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. How do you defeat depression? You worship your way out of it. You sing your way out of it. You praise your way out of it. Because why? It is hard to be condemned while singing about the cross. And it is hard to focus on you while you're singing about him. And it's hard to be depressed while you sing the praises of your king. It just is difficult to do. As a matter of fact, I did this with anger just this past week. Um, how are we doing on time? I don't know. I got I got to confess a little bit. So so I'm I'm golfing this past week and, and if you know me I like I like to golf and, and and so I I made I made a mistake on the golf course. Okay? Let me tell you something you don't do on the golf course all you golfers you know what I'm talking about here. What you don't want to do is hit your ball to where it's going to run up on the next group ahead of you, right? That makes sense. That's just that's just poor ethics. But I hit a I hit the drive of my life. It was as if a gust of wind. My ball was carried with wings of glory and just it, it, I'm telling you what, it was the most beautiful drive in the world, and, and, and it went so far. So it was, it, was, it was what you call a drivable par four. And I was like, there's no way I can reach the green. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to hit up on the, that group. There's no, way I can, there's no way I can reach that green. Trevor, you know what I'm talking about. No way I can do it. My blast the drive of my life, and it rolls up on the dude. And so I wave because that's bad ethic. You know, that's, that's, that's just not courtesy. That's not golfer etiquette, whatever you want to call it. So I wave to the dude like, hey, my bad. I didn't mean to do that. Now, I didn't land it on him. It's not like, you know, golf balls are falling from the sky to destroy his life. Nothing like that. But he just kind of hit about 15, 20 yards short, bounced and rolled up on the green where he was putting. Well, this is what this guy did. This guy goes over and picks up my ball, brings it to the edge of the green and drops it. Then pulls out a golf club and hits it back at me. I'm like, oh, hates hey, no, it's down now. Whoa. And I'm so steaming mad. I am so hacked off. My ego has been bruised. I'm hot. The blood is boiling. I'm mad. Now, let me tell you this. Now, now had, had he just left my ball alone, I would have purposed to find him and apologize. Does that make sense? Like, I'd have been like, hey, dude, just so you know, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to roll. Because that's just what you do. I've rolled up on somebody before on accident, and you just go and tell them you're sorry, and, you know, it was a, you need to make sure you don't do that again. And so, but this guy had the nerve to hit my ball back at me, and I did not like it. I am so angry and steaming mad. But I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be cool. I'm just going to let, let it go. Let it go. So I have to wait for all the other guys in my group to hit, including my son. My son is with me. So I'm like, right, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna let it go. I just, it's, it's, it's not worth it's golf ball, it's not worth it. It's like, because I picked up my ball. I mean, he hit it, he hit it back to me. Uh, he didn't, he, he didn't hit as far as I did. I just let you know that. But uh, he hit it, he hit it back to me. And so, but but I get up, I get up by the green, and I'm thinking, and the guys all in my group are like, man, what a jerk, you know, what a punk. And so, but I'm gonna go drop my ball where it was, and then I'll play, I'll play from there. Well, the dude has moved on, but when he sees me, he starts walking back at me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, well, let's talk about this. <laughs> let's let's have let's have some chat shit here, real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to, uh, I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> and so we start having words, and. Um, and I kind of let him know that I didn't appreciate him hitting my ball back. And I didn't get violent. I didn't get mad. I didn't use any cuss word. I was, I was as dignified as I could be in that moment. But then I leave and walk away. And then I hear him like John after I already left. And, he, and apparently I find out he's like cussing me out and all this stuff. And like after, I'm like, well, you didn't say that when I was up in your face. Anyway, um, 
But like, I'm so like, and, and then you know how it is too, when you get like mad and offended and then for like the rest of the day, all you can do is think about it. Oh yeah. And then you're rehearsing, you know, you're rehearsing. Well, I, you know what I should have said, what I should have said. And you have the best stuff. Like after the fact, it ever comes to you. Sometimes I'm pretty good in the moment, but you know, some of you it, it waits a while before it comes to you. Or, or if you're a dude, you're thinking about like what Mortal Kombat move you would have used on him. Like finish him. You know, you would have. And so like, and that, and that's, and, and I, and I thought, I thought, Todd, you can't like, it's a golf ball. Like, what are you going to go do? Fight the guy? You're going to go, you're going to go get into a fight. Can you, I mean, I literally this is on my mind cause I wanted to hit him. And I was like, I was like, I could see the headline in a newspaper, like local pastor attacks some golfer on. <laughs> and so I literally, I feel the anger. I feel the, Hey, I was so hot in the moment. You know, your adrenaline spikes and yeah, like I could barely hold the putter after this when I had to go putt. I made birdie on the hole, by the way. Um, Cause I was on the green and one, I just had a two putt for birdie. So, but my, I could barely hold the, I was so fired up and so angry. Like I could feel the adrenaline pumping and pulsating through my veins. I want to go do something ungodly to this man. And so, and I'm angry and I'm rehearsing for like hours and even like, and I'm like, why? It's not worth it. It can't be good for your soul. Let it go. And you know what I did? I thought, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to put to practice what I'm going to talk about on Sunday. I'm going to worship my way out of this because it is hard to talk about the goodness and the greatness of your God and to worship him and to love him and to be expressive with him and be angry about Jack Legg who hit your golf ball. Okay. It's just hard. It's just hard. It's hard. Guys, listen to me. It's hard for you to be in the presence of God and to worship God and soak in his love and to go out and be mean and cruel and, and yell at your wife. It's just it's some hard stuff to do. My point is, is that worship is powerful. And if you will surround yourself with worship, it'll change your heart. It'll change your mind. It'll change your physiology. It will help you be successful in life. I'm telling you, it'll open up the doors for you to see clearly and to think clearly and to do and to live as God would have you to live. And worship is what builds and connects that relationship. And out of that relationship with God flows all strength and all love. And that's how you live this life out. But so much of it is built in these places of worship. Listen to this. Uh, the, the, the final one I'll talk about today is this, is that worship prepares us for eternity. Last point, and I'm done here. Worship prepares us for eternity. I, I want to get you this idea that heaven is magnificent. Okay. Heaven is wonderful. Like heaven is this amazing place. Now, now some of you, I know what you feel like your greatest fear of becoming a Christian is that you will die and have to spend eternity at church. And you think church is boring, you know? So like, I get, I get that. I want you to know that heaven is beautiful and heaven is magnificent. Let's listen to what the Bible says. I can read scripture after scripture about heaven. I want to choose one. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has ever conceived these things are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. I want you to know that you have a home waiting for you in heaven and, and that there's so much wonder and there's so much beauty. The Bible says that it's literally a city that's like 2,000 miles high, 2,000 miles wide, 2,000 miles deep, that it's got layer after layer after layer, that literally they have, you have roads made of gold, that you have gates made of pearl, that there are gems and stones, that there are angels and heavenly beings. And I'm telling you, there's incredible things in heaven. And at the centerpiece, there is no sun in heaven because at the centerpiece of the city is Jesus himself and he illuminates the entire place with his glory and that that creates an environment where you can't help but worship because some of you unfortunately you're, you're nervous you're nervous that when you die you will turn into a chubby baby and sit on a cloud 
with a harp forever. And that's not heaven. That is Tom and Jerry. That is what that is. You have Tom and Jerry theology. You stop that right now. Heaven is beautiful and heaven is magnificent. And there's a lot of great things in heaven. But one of the things in heaven is this. Is that you will be able to sing hallelujah, hallelujah, thousands of praises to you. And you will never get to the end of all that God is. And that will make you and compel you to worship. You won't be forced. You don't have to sit on a cloud. You don't have to have a heart. You don't have to be chubby. You'll have a great body in heaven. I hope. I think. I'll go with that. But it's going to prepare you. Because you know one of the other things that worship does to prepare your heart for heaven? Is that in worship and in the presence of God, things come to the surface that you're like, ooh, that shouldn't be in there. Ooh, that, that doesn't belong there. Why would I feel bitter towards that person? I can't, I can't, it's hard to worship God and be bitter at the same time, isn't it? Because all of a sudden you find things in your soul that you're, ooh, that, ooh that, that doesn't belong there. And all of a sudden worship brings those things to the surface so that you're ready to say, you know, I'm ready to let that go. I need to get rid of that. I don't want to carry that. I don't want to put that on my children. I don't want to have that in my heart. I don't want to have that. And worship is what's done that is to prepare you for heaven. Because do you think that that stuff will exist in the presence of God? No. And worship helps prepare you for that. Helps kind of cleanse the soul and help you get rid of the things in your life that you don't need. God wants you to be free. And I'm telling you that many of you will become free through the power of worship. Here's what I want you to do.